Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, January the 28th, 2022, and the show will be rebroadcast on Monday, January the 31st. 2022 from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 93rd post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show... We continue to deconstruct the propaganda around U.S. foreign policy and the Ukraine with special guest D. Knight, and we will be featuring his article, Stripping Away the B.S., U.S. and Russian Threats Over Ukraine, What They're About and Who's the Aggressor, just recently published on the 25th of January of this month. D. Knight is a anti-war activist. He's also the author of a book that's soon to be published, My Whirlwind Lives, Navigating Decades of Storms. Thank you so much for joining us in our pursuit for social justice. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos. Today is Friday, January the 28th, 2022. And we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, January the 31st, 2022. I wanted to go ahead and do a short introduction before we formally introduce our guest. It seems often at times that what we accuse Russia of doing to undermine the tenets of sovereignty or civil democracy within other nations is what I have discovered through an abundance of evidence that we are much greater guilty of. In psychology, they have a term that describes this defense mechanism. It's called projection. Which essentially means that we project onto others what, in fact, we are guilty of, not them. At the same time, in the United States, we have a long documented history of profoundly biased news coverage by our mainstream media of some of these growing conflicts that have repeatedly led us to war. The result is time and time again, we as the United States public are not afforded both sides and all sides of issues at hand. And instead, we have a media tendency to uncritically represent to the American public conditions on the ground with incredible bias in favor of the U.S. foreign policy perspective. This is a hallmark sign of what propaganda looks like. And as a result, the cost is failure to afford the public a fair review and vetting of other information that may be available in the public domain, but is omitted because it is in contradiction to the claims or the premises and assumptions that the claims are based on by our media. 
Instead, they are allowed to proceed unchallenged in the mainstream presentation of the issue, with the common result being essential information is omitted. And what's omitted is the other country's perspective and the other country's potential economic and or security concerns that may paint a different picture. That is why studying history is so important. Within history, although it is often distorted by mainstream sources, lies the evidence of truths as well. For instance, in Vietnam, we know today how we were intentionally misled by our government, government claims of winning the war, etc. In Iraq, we know now that beyond any reasonable doubt, we were lied to about weapons of mass destruction. We were lied to about al-Qaeda being harbored by Saddam Hussein government. We were lied to about Saddam Hussein was involved and largely responsible for 9-11. If we turn to Libya in 2011, we were lied into believing that Gaddafi was committing great humanitarian atrocities against his own people and that we had to act. In Syria, we were lied into believing there was this great moderate rebel-led resistance made up of Syrians seeking to overthrow the elected government of Bashir Assad and later that according to the Obama government led by State Department head John Kerry, in which he said that with absolute certainty it was Assad and the Assad government that was responsible for gassing his own people on August 21st, 2013. All of these today are proven lies or falsehoods. And these are just a few examples in history, certainly not an exhaustive list. Time and time again, we roll out and when we say we, it's the U.S. government and their accomplice, namely a uncritical U.S. mainstream press. They roll out unsubstantiated claims that by their mere repetition by the mainstream media become false facts in that no incontrovertible evidence is ever provided to support those allegations. Yet through these unsubstantiated claims, i.e. the Russian bounty stories, the Skirple poisonings, that was the work of Russia, etc., and the list goes on and on, we are acculturated to hate and to fear whatever Russia or the enemy of the day is, based not on real humanitarian concerns, but rather based on whether or not they fall into line with U.S. policy interests, which are not necessarily those of the United States citizens. And the list goes on and on. We are acculturated to hate and fear whatever we are told our dastardly enemies are by our government and media. So why, after so many proven lies, should we believe our government claims if it is not accompanied by substantial evidence of those claims? Why in the public domain do we allow this to repeat itself time and time again? It is with this framing of our recent foreign policy claims that when we examine the government of the United States and the mainstream media's framing of the Ukrainian, U.S.-NATO-Russian separatist conflict, in which each day it seems is arguably taking us closer to a major war between the U.S.-NATO countries and Russia, between the two countries with by far the most nuclear weapons, the United States and Russia, of course, I implore the U.S. public to consider all the claims made by both sides and the merit of those claims by considering all sides of the issue. In contrast to what we are bombarded with, informationally speaking, each day, this weekly news and analysis show have been bringing light into what is being omitted or otherwise misrepresented by our mainstream media each week on this show, bringing light into darkness. And let me be clear that the ideas shared each week are those of bringing light into darkness, its show and its guests, and not necessarily those of co-op radio itself. 
and that if there is anything you believe is misrepresented as fact, please send us the note and we will promptly revisit the content and correct the misrepresentation if it is merited and will also respond to your concerns personally by email. Our investigative journalism is solely motivated in the pursuit of truth and the promotion of right over wrong. Anyhow, with that being said, tonight's program continues our focus on the Ukraine conflict and, and the way it is presented to the American public. And I am very pleased to be able to share with you that we have a very special guest. His name is D. Knight. And D, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you. Well, D actually is working on releasing a book that's soon to be published, My Whirlwind Lives Navigating Decades of Storms. There's a particular article of yours, D, that I wanted to highlight tonight and have you speak to and pretty much encompasses a lot of areas that we want to get more information out on. But let me ask you, can you just share briefly a little bit of your own personal history? Tell us a little bit about what brought you to be so concerned and radicalized by the issues of the day? Was it a particular event, or can you kind of just walk us through some of your own ideological evolution? I guess you could trace it to the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution back in August of 1964. I was recently out of high school at that point, and it wasn't until a couple of years later when Johnson was had announced that a half a million boys would be drafted to go to Vietnam. And I was learning every day at that time through the civil rights movement and the burgeoning draft resistance and ultimately made the decision to go to Canada rather than allow myself to be used as cannon fodder or a killer in Vietnam. And living and and working as a war resistor in Canada gave me time to become more knowledgeable about the habit of lying of the U.S. government when it comes to foreign policy and war. And it really changed my life. I've dedicated myself to opposing the U.S. war machine. After my charges of draft refusal were dismissed on a technicality back in 1974, I came back to the U.S. to help fight for unconditional amnesty for war resistors and later went to Sandinista, Nicaragua, to provide some solidarity help to the revolution there from 1987 to 90 and was able to see even more clearly that the U.S. government tends to be on the wrong side and to use lies and bully tactics to try and stop people in both large and small countries around the world from exercising self-determination. The result is that I do watch developments around the world with an eagle eye and with a real critical capacity to see through the official explanations of what's going on. Yeah, that's very interesting, Dee, because I remember the Sandinista period, too, and it was the same type of profile that the claims that were being made were just never substantiated in any real way. And there was just this great fear mongering about the spread of communism. And as a result, we supported a number of military dictatorships throughout Central America. So there was never a real focus or honest concern for human rights yet the American public were assured there was. 
and I'm very interested in that part of your life. But tonight, our focus is on the Ukraine theater, and we've been doing a number of shows over the years, actually since 2014, since the coup itself in February of 2014. We were very concerned about it, then filed it since then. And one of the things I wanted to afford our listeners, we've done a lot of shows, we haven't spent a lot of time on explicating from the position of the government that got cooed out, the Yanukovych government. If I can take you back to that period before and during the year of 2014, there was a pre-coup period and there was a lot of pressure for the Yanukovych government, an elected government, to make a decision regarding a EU loan package or a Russian loan package. And we refer to the fact that they ultimately made a choice, a truly sovereign choice, I might add, to go with a Russian package. And and I believe that's what got the whole coup thing up on its legs and rolling very, very quickly. But we've never really talked about the elements of that package. And what is your perspective of the, the Yanukovych government choices at that time, the decision that was made, and a little bit about the coup itself? But can you take us back to that EU loan package and Russia package and explain some of the differences in these choices that ultimately the president and the government at that time had to make? Sure. It was a turning point. And the Ukrainian president at the time, whose main base of support was in eastern Ukraine, which is a predominantly Russian-speaking area, saw that the Russian loan package of about $15 billion at low interest and no strings was better for Ukraine, in his opinion, than the uh, loan package offered by the EU, which was for $17 billion, roughly the same amount of money, but at a higher interest rate and with some strings. Ukraine at that time had significant balance of payments issues and was a bit of an economic basket case and needed help. The EU looked at Ukraine a lot like Greece and the same kind of terms that the EU and German bankers had given to Greece, basically calling for privatization of all public services and an austerity plan. That's what the EU offered uh, Ukraine. And the Russian package was really based on the fact that much of the two economies were interwoven. So Russia could offer better terms with a higher level of mutual confidence. But the thing about the Ukraine is it's really uh, divided between West and East. The West, which is bordered by Poland, is much more right-wing and Europe-oriented, whereas the East is more Russian-oriented, and the half of the population living in the East speaks Russian. It, in a way, could be considered two countries. Excuse me for interrupting, Dee, but this is a really important what you're sharing. Before we move away from the loan options that Ukraine had at that time, you mentioned how Russia was kind of interwoven with the East, which is predominantly Russian speaking, of course. So not only were they able to provide a lower interest rate, I'm wondering if, if you know how much lower it was, but more importantly, the things that really destroy the quality of life in countries are these privatization and austerity plans, these structural adjustment programs that they're sometimes called, in which essentially what happens 
is everyone has to tighten up their belt that's below the most powerful interests in a way that the quality of life is extremely, extremely compromised. Essentially, when you hear austerity measures and privatization, what immediately follows is increased wealth inequality, wealth being transferred from the most needy majority population to the elite interests. Did you see evidence of that once you had the post-coup? And for me, that's an important thing to talk about as these economic choices that resulted in the more challenging living standards that Ukraine is exhibiting. I mean, you mentioned that there was already challenging, but can you talk a little bit more about that, about the privatization and austerity plan and how, from a perspective of that government, why they chose the Russian package? Well, it's an interesting thing to consider what was really happening. In a very real sense, Ukraine was splitting apart with the Western half and the Europe-oriented and U.S.-oriented investors wanting to really sacrifice the more industrialized sectors of the East that were oriented towards Russia and essentially reorient. I don't want to say sell the country, although there were aspects of that uh, to the West. You could say the nature of the two different loans. One was a continuation and intensification of existing economic relations. And the other was the reorientation towards Western Europe was very much a part of what you could call the recolonization of that part of Ukraine along the same lines as the Eastern European economies after the collapse of the Soviet bloc. It's good to kind of shift focus to look at who pushed for reversing President Yakunovich's decision to go with the Russian loan and ditch the European offer. At that time, the far right wing stepped in and fought like crazy in what at the time was really a, a right-wing coup d'etat that involved neo-fascist forces. It was interesting to me that the other day, January 6th, there was a New York Times report that said Russia intervened militarily in Ukraine in 2014 after pro-democracy protests erupted there. Those so-called pro-democracy protests were actually a coup carried out by fascist gangs. And this was documented by Professor Stephen Cohen writing in The Nation back in May of 2018. And he wrote that these gangs were engaged in pogrom-like burning to death of ethnic Russians and others in Odessa, as well as other parts of eastern Ukraine. At the same time, they were very strongly encouraged by Victoria Nuland, Joe Biden, and other pro prominent U.S politicians. And the Azov Battalion and other neo-Nazi soldiers were integrated into the Ukraine's official military. Now, what does it mean? It means that there was essentially a recapitulation of the kinds of tear-apart forces that the German Nazis had fomented in the Ukraine back in the time of World War II. They had been neutralized during the period when Ukraine was was part of the Soviet Union. But in the breakup, which happened in other countries, the breakup of the socialist order, most typically like Yugoslavia, unleashed the inequalities and the social divisions. And we saw 
horrible things back in 2017. Cohen wrote about stormtroop-like assaults on gays and Jews and elderly ethnic Russians. And those kinds of assaults continue to this day. What's called a civil war in Ukraine is a little uglier when you get up close. This is important because it raises the question, which side are we on? And I say we with great caution because I heard you say we about the official United States government. I think that we, the people here, need to consider are we on the same side as the official State Department focus on these far-right wing proto-fascist elements in the government in, in Ukraine. But what I'm getting back to the decisions about which way to go in sort of the Ukrainian national economic strategy on one side in the West, the tendency was to tilt towards Europe, hoping for a future that could be part of globalization. Whereas in the East, there was already a very significant traditional integration of Eastern Ukraine with the economy of Russia. It's worth bearing in mind that the bulk of Ukraine and all of Eastern Ukraine for three centuries was part of Russia. This is another thing that's important to bear in mind. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff about Russian invasion of Ukraine, largely focused on the fact that Crimea, as well as the break-off provinces of the Donbass region of eastern uh, Ukraine, they uh, essentially voted to declare independence, and in the case of Crimea, voted to rejoin Russia, which Crimea had been a part for centuries. If I could, we talked about that quite a bit last week, but I think it's really important to emphasize and reemphasize that people of the East in that Donbass area, in that Lugansk and, and in that Donetsk area, and then, like you said, in Crimea, when you go back and you look at the polling as to who they voted for that brought the president to power that we cooed out, they were overwhelmingly, when I say overwhelmingly, well over 70%, more like 80%, 90% reaches in parts of the Crimea, voted for this very president that we cooed out. So we continually completely neglect this very important fact as a potential motivation and probably the main, well, one of the main motivations, and the other one I think you already spoke to, was the ugly right-wing Naziist repression that followed the coup that resulted and stoked the separatists and the Crimea people to referendums to divorce themselves from Ukraine and get into the, the Russian camp. I, I want to just remind folks that we are visiting with D. Knight. He also has recently written it's an article that I enjoyed and that I studied, studying over the last few days, stripping away the BS, U.S. and Russian threats over Ukraine, what they're about, and who is the aggressor, January 25th, 2022 piece that was published in Covert Action magazine. But getting back to our discussion, D, I wanted you to certainly finish your comments about about the breakup of Russia, if you like. But I also wanted to turn to educating our listeners a little bit about the substance of this Nord Stream 2 and the gas prices that you would suspect Ukrainians would benefit from if that went through versus if it does not go through. Can you speak to that as well in your comments? Yes, I certainly can. There's one last 
uh, point that I just want to bookmark for us to go back to as we've talked a little about the divisions inside Ukraine. Possibly the hottest news of the week is that the governments of Ukraine, Russia, France, and Germany sat down in Paris on Wednesday and, well, went through discussions of the Minsk II peace plan and basically came out saying, they, they came out with a joint communique after eight hours of talks saying that this agreement, which was aimed at stopping the fighting in eastern Ukraine, can be the basis and there should be no talk of war. Russia was there and Ukraine was there. They both agreed there's not going to be a Russian invasion. And I just want to have that out there so we can come back to it. But it is, you're right, it's really good for us to kind of take a look at natural gas politics and or geopolitics and look at the significance and impact of the so-called Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline that has been in development now for several years and is now finished and ready to go, but is kind of on hold. Back in 2019, it was Trump who actually called for sanctions on Germany, of all governments, for planning to implement this pipeline, which would roughly double the amount of uh, natural gas Germany and Western Europe could import from Russia, and it would also bypass existing uh, gas deliveries that uh, need to go from Russia through Ukraine, for which Ukraine gets carrying fees of about $4 billion a year, which is a significant chunk of change for Ukraine. D, we need to take a quick break for a pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is the premier community radio station of the nation. This is bringing light into darkness, and we will be back with our special guest, D Knight, right after this. Please stay tuned. Don't touch that dial. 